If you'd like to help, we do need some help over the next couple weekends. Um, during the week, the construction crew needs the sanctuary completely empty so they can continue to do some of the retrofitting that they are doing. And so we need some people, some volunteers on Sunday evenings after youth group to help us get the chairs out of the sanctuary. And then on Saturday mornings, um, we need people to help us set the chairs back up. And so uh, you might have received an email about an interest if you want to help out in that. Uh, you can, Leslie Newmeyer is kind of coordinating that for us. Um, you can reach out to the office to get a hold of her, let her know that if, if you want to help us out. But it looks like the ne- at least the next two weekends, we're going to be doing that, taking them out and putting them back in. Um, and so we could, we could use some help getting that set up each week. But uh, thanks. Just here to say thank you for being patient with us as we continue to expand the sanctuary and try to make room for, for everybody. So um, I'm glad you guys are here. Welcome. And we are continuing to run through the Bible initiative. Um, this morning, if you've got a Bible, you can open up to the book of Colossians. Uh, we're going to be spending our time there. The actual Bible reading this week is Ephesians and Colossians. And as amazing as the text as Ephesians is, it wasn't that long ago that we did a series on Ephesians here. And so I wanted to spend some time focusing in on the book of Colossians and the incredible truth that are in there. And so when I was in college, I um, had the opportunity to study abroad in Greece and Turkey. It was about, for about six weeks. I was overseas and studied the Apostle Paul's missionary journeys. And I actually got to visit the city of Colossae. Um, and I distinctly remember it because there was nothing to see. The, we got off the tour bus and literally walked into a field. The, it's completely unexcavated. Um, but what I remember so distinctly is literally the field is just littered thousands and thousands of pieces of broken pottery. Um, you see, the, the government actually owns the land, and the, it's a legalized opioid farm. And so every year they uh, turn over the soil, till the soil up, and just destroy tons of history. And, and nobody seems to really care about it. Um, but as I was walking through this field, I found a piece that was a little distinct from other pieces uh, of pottery out there. A lot of the pottery is just like the edges, kind of long and thin, Imagine if you dropped a vase. Um, a lot of it are just pieces of the edges. But this was a little different. It's got a kind of a flat top to it. And on the inside, it's definitely been shaped uh, by a potter. And also, there's this little groove at the edge of it that um, I, showed, I brought up to our tour guide. And, and they thought it was either the lid to a jar or like the top of edge of the jar. Um, and I just, I, I took it home with me. Um, but uh, it's a, I think it's a very um, indicative picture of the warning that Paul gives the Colossians. Um, Paul had never been to the city of Colossae uh, before he wrote his letter. Paul wasn't the one who planted the church in Colossae. Uh, that was actually a man named Epaphras. Uh, it's believed that Paul and Epaphras spent time together in Ephesus. I've been tongue-tied over that all three services. Um, Paul spent three years in Ephesus, and it's believed that Epaphras spent time with him there. And so Epaphras took the message of the gospel home to his home city in Colossae and planted a church. And um, the reason we have the book and the letter uh, to the Colossians is this. Uh, Epaphras visited Paul when he was in prison in Rome. 
and he shared of the joy of faithful believers gathering together in the church that had started. Um, and he also shared of some concerns over some false teaching that was starting to infiltrate the church. And so Paul pens this letter to him. He pens it from prison. Uh, it's believed around 62 AD is when he wrote it. And um, let me get on the right page here. And Paul writes the letter first to be an encouragement, you know, to encourage the faithful believers that are in the church at Colossae. Uh, and he wants to encourage them to a greater devotion to Jesus because, yes, there will be false teaching that is around the church. And so Paul writes the letter. And one thing you have to realize is as we look and read Paul's letters, all of Paul's letters are just absolutely filled with doctrinal truth about God, about Jesus, and his church. And the church still stands faithfully firm on those teachings today. Paul's letters are often written either in a way of correction or a warning against false teaching. And so we have to realize that Christians have been plagued with false doctrine, false teachings um, since the beginning and the inception of the church. You know, some of those false teachings or false doctrines are outright assault on the church and the word of God, just directly contradicting what the Bible has to say. Uh, but others are far more innocent and um, subtle I think when I say innocent, I think oftentimes false teachings start out of a misstep in interpretation. And it starts to lead them off in, in a rabbit trail. And before they know it, they are completely teaching something that's outside the bounds of Scripture. And so no matter how innocent that misstep might be, just as Paul takes a firm stance, we ought to do the same in rebuking false teaching. You know, when it comes to false teaching, a lot of these are rooted in Satan's work. You know, Satan in scripture is called the father of lies, and what he wants to do is just sow lies over the top of the truth. You know, Satan loves to deceive us. You see, deceit is Satan's chief ally. He attempts to confuse the world so that they cannot perceive the truth that's laid out in Scripture. And he does that by drowning them in a sea of deceit. And really, if we're honest, a steady stream of false teaching, false prophets, false saviors um, has been building since the early days of the church. You know, today it's probably wider and deeper than it's ever been in human history. Whether it's false teaching about God, about Jesus, about the Bible itself, or just simply about spiritual realities. It's a pandemic, okay? Many writers in the New Testament address it. They challenge us on false teaching. Matthew, John, Luke, Peter, they all speak to it. They, they talk directly to, hey, warning. But Paul is probably the one that speaks the loudest and the most to it. Paul in his letter, or in, in Acts, is recorded um, speaking to the, the elders in Ephesus. He'd spent three years there. He's getting ready to leave, and he's, sending them, he's speaking some encouragement over them. And he says this, Acts 20, 28. He says, Be on guard for yourselves, for all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has appointed you as overseers, 
to shepherd the church of God, which he has purchased with his own blood. And here's what he has to say. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Men will rise up even from your own number to distort the truth and lure your own disciples into following them. Therefore, be on alert, remembering that day and night for three years, I never stopped warning each of you, even with tears. So I want you to see, not only do false teaching come as an external attack on the church, but very well they can come up from within. Paul's second letter to Timothy in chapter four, he says this, he says, for the time will come when people will not tolerate sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, they will multiply teachers for themselves because they have an itch to hear what they want to hear. They will turn away from hearing the truth and they will turn aside to myths. We're seeing this play out on several fronts in the American church today. You know, there are people coming forward saying, hey, well, we've misinterpreted text for centuries. We've gotten these doctrines wrong for centuries. And they do it because they want to replace it with something that's more comforting and more culturally acceptable in the world. Satan is working to destroy the saving and sanctifying truth that is given to us in God's word and through his son. I think I said this last time I stood on the stage. Satan's got two primary objectives. He wants to destroy God's people and he wants to defame God's glory. The only way he destroys God's people is by attacking your faith. Accepting false teaching leaves you as broken as this piece of pottery. It's very hard to have hope when you got broken pottery. Our faith is not circumstantial, but yet very often it's our circumstances that Satan uses to rattle our faith. The Bible has to be the baseline. It's got to be the foundation of our life. We can look nowhere else if we want to find the saving and sanctifying truth. Nowhere else. So much so, so much of false teaching derives itself from experiences and emotions um, of the here and now. You know, experience and emotions, hear me say this, they are good and they can be of God. But the moment that experiences and emotions come before what scripture actually says, or experiences or emotions become more important than what the Bible actually says, friends, we gotta stop because you're setting yourself up to be deceived. Paul knows this, and so he writes this letter to the Colossians. And Paul's letter to the Colossians is supposed to be an encouragement and a reminder of the supremacy of Christ. Paul's warning about false teaching actually comes in the second chapter um, of Colossians in, in verses, two, or verses four and eight. He says, I'm saying this so that no one will deceive you with arguments that sound reasonable. Be careful that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deceit based on human tradition, based on elements of the world, rather than Christ. 
So he says this in chapter two, and he leads into his warning in chapter two by saying, I'm saying this. Well, we skipped over a lot in chapter one, so we need to step back into chapter one and look at what Paul is actually saying. Because in chapter one, Paul paints this incredible portrait of the supremacy of Christ that honestly no false teaching can stand against. Um, So let's read it. I'm going to read verses 9 through 20 in chapter 1. Paul says this. He says, For this reason also, since the day we heard this, we haven't stopped praying for you. We are asking that you may be filled in the knowledge of his will, in all wisdom and spiritual understanding, so that you may walk worthy of the Lord fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and growing in the knowledge of God and being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might so that you may have great endurance and patience, joyfully giving thanks to the Father who has enabled you to share in the saints' inheritance in the light. He has rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of the Son he loves. In him, we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. Okay, you ready for this? Verse 15. Paul says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, for everything was created by him in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and by him all things hold together. He's also the head of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile everything to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on a cross." Friends, just stop for a moment and soak in the magnitude of what Paul is proclaiming about Christ. Who is Christ? He's the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn over all creation. He's created all things, that all things have been created through him and for him. He's before all things. And he holds all things together. He literally sustains everything. The trees that you see out this window, they're standing tall because Christ sustains them. The grass grows because Christ sustains it. This paper remains paper and doesn't dissolve into water because Christ sustains it as such. He holds all things together. If you get... The transit newsletter, I'm going to add a video into the transit this week. That's an incredible illustration of this. If you don't get transit, you should. But if you don't, get on YouTube, look up Louis Giglio. He's a pastor in Atlanta. And search for Laminin, L-A-M-I-N-I-N. It is an incredible picture of how Christ holds all things together. It will blow your mind. Sorry. He holds all things together. He is the head of the church. God's fullness dwells in him, and through him we are reconciled to God through his blood shed on the cross. Soak in the magnitude of what Paul is proclaiming about Christ. Because if we do, 
he's everything. He should be in first and foremost of chief importance to us. If we are to recognize and rebuke false teaching so that we're not deceived, we have to know who Christ is and we have to know the Christ of the Bible. As I said a moment ago, the Bible has to be the baseline. It's got to be the foundation of our belief. And if you want an example of how important Paul thinks Scripture is to identifying and rebuking um, false teaching, verses 15 through 20, five verses, there are 36 references to Scripture there. Our minds, our hearts, our wills have to be involved here. You know, I'm not sure mentally our minds are going to be able to fully comprehend and understand the truth here, at least this side of eternity, but they ought to be invested. We have to feed on his word to understand who Christ is. Our hearts have to be focused and fully given over to him. And our wills need to be submitted to his. You know, at least in the middle, to practice and pattern our will after his. We ought to fill our lives every day with him. So Paul moves on. He continues in Colossians 1, verse 25. He says, I have become its servant. It is the church. I have become its servant according to, to God's commission that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now is revealed to all, to his saints. God wanted to make known among the Gentiles the glorious wealth of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ in you, the hope of glory. We could spend the rest of our lives studying those seven words. If we are able to grasp the truth that are in these words, I'm convinced it will radically change you to the core at how you view your life. If we have, if you have, repented of your sin and turned your life to Christ, confessed him as Lord, hear me say this, he dwells in you. The Christian life is an empowered life by the Holy Spirit. You know, all throughout the Old Testament, we see and read about God saying, promising to his people, I will be with you. He speaks that directly to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, Moses, and so on all the way through. He constantly hear him say, I will be with you. I will not forsake you. Do not fear, for I am with you. And what we need to recognize here is God ushers in a new covenant with, through Jesus as Jesus' reconciling work on the cross takes place. That promise from God that says, I will be with you, turns into Christ in you. It's quite possibly the most astounding truth in the Bible. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Jesus died for you so that he might live in you. The Holy Spirit dwells in you. So Jesus is not just a savior. As great as that is, he ought to be our life. We have no need for anything else. 
And this is where we need to recognize Satan loves to use false teaching to sow lies of deceit over the top of this truth. If he's able to deceive us, we lose sight of this beautiful truth of Christ in you, the hope of glory. And what happens in those moments when we lose sight of this is we try to live this Christian life on our own. And it is impossible. It is impossible. Because what happens is now we start balancing our life, our control, our comfort of it with trying to live as a Christian, the Christian life. And what happens is that we try to balance the two as seeds are sown and, and then we strive for security in our finances, in our status, in our relationships. And inevitably, those finances, those status, those relationships begin to outweigh the Christian life. You cannot do this on your own. We can't get it right. It's designed that way. If we try to impose our will on any category of of this Christian life, we fail. It's only possible through Christ in you. Christ in you. Because Christ is the only one that's able to live this Christian life properly. And that's the beauty of it. He lives in you. He's able to do all things. He's able to hold all things together. But we have to let him. We have to honestly open up our hands and say, you, you have to do this. David Platt says, if you can trust God to save you for eternity, you can trust him to lead you for a lifetime. If you can trust God to save you for eternity, you can trust him to lead you for a lifetime. If scripture is the foundation of where our beliefs come from, it's the foundation for our ability to be able to recognize false teaching and turn away from those things. If we can do that, we ought to be able to live our life complete freedom, trusting in Christ to lead us for a lifetime. So let Paul's words be the foundational truth to who you are in Christ. Christ in you, the hope of glory. I want to give you a picture here, okay? Um, I have this little magic table here for a reason, okay? This box, this is, this is going to represent you, all right? I did you all a favor. I had my wife write on this instead of me. Um, you wouldn't be able to read it if I did it. But this box represents your life, okay? Scripturally, we know that we are born into this world with a sinful nature, empty and devoid of the Spirit of Christ, Right? But we also know the truth of the good news of the gospel, that if we turn to Christ, confess our sins, and believe Jesus as Lord, place our faith in him, that we have this promise that Paul is talking about here, Colossians 1.27, that we have Christ in you, the hope of glory. So we have Christ in us, the hope of glory. Okay? So now, this is you. Christ in you. This is what the word of God says. And I want to point something out to you. Ephesians 1, 13 and 14 says, Paul says this. He says, in him you were also sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of salvation, and when you believed. The Holy Spirit is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. He is not going anywhere. 
This, this is a tight seal. He's not going to leave you. He's not going to forsake you. He is here until eternity, for eternity. So, Christ in you, the hope of glory. But, this isn't the end. There's more beauty in this. Go down to verse 28. Paul says, we proclaim him warning and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Mature in Christ. Okay, this is the more common way you hear Paul talk about our relationship and our identity, that we are actually in Christ. So, now, here's you, and we are actually more properly, in Paul's words, in Christ. Same rules apply. It is secure. He's not going anywhere. So now this is a picture of you. Christ is in you, and you are in Christ. It's pretty safe, don't you think? Pretty good picture. Check this out. It gets even better. Go to Colossians 3, verse 3. Paul goes on to say, For you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Okay, this is, this is good. All right? So now we have God, and we're going to put you in Christ, in God. And friends, this is secure. So now this is the picture of you. Christ in you, and you are in Christ, and Christ is in God. What an incredible picture of the security that we have in faith in Jesus. I want to say this. I I think if I stood at the door this morning and passed out little post-it notes and I asked you to write what's the greatest struggle in your life right now, I think I could say with a fair amount of confidence what a predominant answer would be. I think a lot of you would write fear. And the reality is that might look, it might take some different forms. It might be anxiety or stress or busyness. But I think if you wiggled that down and really dug down into the, the root of it is fear. So if that's anywhere close to where you are today, I want you to invite you to look at this picture. Look at this picture. Christ is in you, and you are in Christ, and Christ is in God. And what that means for you and I is if Satan wants to deceive us, if he wants to sow some lies over this truth, he's got to get through God, which he doesn't have a great track record for, okay? Then he's got to come face-to-face with Christ, who he's already done, and he's lost. He lost miserably, okay? Thought he won, but three days later, Christ rises from the dead and achieves final and total victory over him. So, inconceivably, if he's able to get through God, which he can't, if he's able to get through Christ, which he can't, then he comes to you. But you know what? He's going to go around two with Christ because you have Christ in you. 
We have nothing to fear if we are able to honestly trust and accept the freedom that is right here. It doesn't matter what the circumstances are because honestly, whatever those hardships are in our life, those circumstances that we are dealing with, there is nothing outside of the grace and mercy and sovereignty and love of Christ that happens to you and I. Absolutely nothing to fear. This is why Paul has absolutely no fear in suffering. He rejoices in it. Because he knows nothing can take away this picture. Fear has no place here. Nothing can take away the security of the picture and the truth of Christ in you, the hope of glory. And that hope is a completed life. It is not something that we're wishing for. It is hope. That hope is a certainty. Paul even says it in Colossians 3, verse 4. He says, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. The hope of glory is a certainty. (laughs) So let your hearts get around this mammoth truth. Christ, the image of God, the author of creation, the head of the church, Christ lives in you. We just need to let his life overflow from within us. I would imagine there's probably a thought bouncing around your brain right now um, where you would say, I'm trying to do this. I'm trying to trust God with X, Y, or Z. Um, And I believe you. I believe that you are trying to trust God. But I would ask you one question. I would ask, have you given up complete control over that situation? Because when we strive for some sort of control, what we do is we take these lids off. And we allow Satan just to throw all kinds of junk at us to deceive us. Christ is the only one that can satisfy. He's the only one that can fill us. He's the only one that can change our hearts, our minds, and our wills. It's at that moment of surrender that Christ overflows from within us. So Paul lays out this incredible truth about our identity in Christ. And he writes this letter pushing the Colossians for a deeper devotion because false teaching is going to continue to plague the church until Christ returns. And Paul doesn't just stop at saying, hey, this is who you are. He goes on to give you some instruction as well. In chapter 2, verse 6 and 7, he says, So then, just as you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live in him, being rooted and built up in him, established in the faith, just as you were taught, overflowing with gratitude. We cling to the desire to grow spiritually because if we grasp this picture, if we can grasp this truth, there is nothing more desirable than deeply knowing our Savior. To be rooted in his word, to be built up in his word, to walk in faith with a gratitude that is not ours, but it's of Christ. Paul goes on and he calls calls us to focus Chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, he says, So if you have been raised with Christ, seek the things above where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God, set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. Focus. 
Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. You see, Satan wants to do everything in his power to convince you that understanding scripture or really understanding what the sovereignty of God is, really, it's not that big a deal. You know, or, or faithfully committing to attend this church or getting involved in a small group where people can rally alongside you to help you grow. You're just too busy for that. You know, or, man, your, your financial portfolio is kind of weak. You, you need to kill yourself to make that extra dollar. That's the seed of lies that Satan loves to throw at us. Stay focused. Set your mind on things above. When we fix our eyes on something other than Christ, we're tearing these lids off and allowing Satan just to dump whatever lie he wants into our life. Walking closely with Christ, pursuing him to be rooted and built up in his word is what closes the lid. Paul summarizes what Christ closing the lid should look like and feel like in our lives. He does that in Colossians 3, 15 through 17. He says, let the peace of Christ to which you were also called in one body rule your hearts and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell richly among you in all wisdom, teach, admonish one another through psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, and singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. There's a pastor, uh, an old pastor from Britain, um, called R.E.O. White. And he calls these challenging words in 15 through 17 the, the fullness commands. And in regards to this passage, R.E.O. White says, the surest sign that you are carrying a full bucket is wet feet. This is not true, like you, you fill up a bucket of water to wash the floor or wash your car and you, you spill some on your feet, right? When, we, when our lives are full and our buckets are full with Christ, we get wet feet. His life overflows out of us. Experiencing the fullness of his peace. Paul says, let the peace of Christ rule your heart. That peace is a sense of wholeness, of well-being, of being complete, regardless of the circumstances around you. It's even more, it's experiencing the presence of Christ in your life. So when we carry buckets full of Christ, our lives are bathed in the peace of God. The fullness of his word, how do we allow the word of God to dwell among us richly, I think this is one of the big aims of the Bible initiative was for us to be familiar with all parts of Scripture. We must read and meditate on the Word of God for, in order for it to dwell amongst us. There's no shortcuts. Richness comes when we yield ourselves to the Holy Spirit and we meditate on His Word and we memorize His Word and we simply do what it says. It's not a question of discipline study. It's a matter of the heart. And man, when you do press in like that, is it ever rich? So friends, I want to ask you, are your feet wet? Are your feet wet? If you don't know how to answer that question, I want you to hear me say, I'm so glad you're here. I want you to look at this picture 
and I want you to engage with us this week. We, we're reading Ephesians and Colossians. It's six chapters and four chapters. It's not a lot of reading, but it is incredibly jam-packed with, our, with language about our identity in Christ. Don't let Satan rob you of another day with dry feet. Don't, define, don't let yourself be defined like this broken piece of pottery. There is grace and peace and a fullness, regardless of your circumstances, found in a life and an identity that's given over to Christ. One that is completely sealed in the supremacy of Christ, our Savior, Jesus. So let's get our feet wet. If you are here this morning and you feel like, I don't know what that means, or God's stirring in your heart, you're not sure what to do, but I, I want to invite you to pray with us. Um, come forward, we'll, we'll be here to pray after service. And Paul says in Colossians 4 too, he says, devote yourself to prayer, stay alert in it. I want to invite you to pray with us. I'm going to close this in prayer, and I went a little long, so you guys are dismissed after I get done praying here. Um, pray with me. Father, we come before you, um, Lord, incredibly grateful for the truth that is in your word, Lord, the truth in our identity in you. Lord, we praise you and say thank you, Lord, that your spirit dwells within us. Lord, that our willingness to turn our life over to you means that we dwell within you and you are in God. Lord, may our lives reflect this hope. May we live our life in such a way in complete peace and freedom that when others look at us and wonder what is going on, we are able to share the grace and love that you provide in an identity in, that is completely given over to you. Father, we thank you for your son Jesus and his work on the cross. Lord, for eternity. We praise you. Amen. Thank you, guys. Have a great week.